Welcome. You're listening to the podcast where we interview founders innovating at the near frontier, whose companies will give you a glimpse of the future. Near Frontier is brought to you by Cantos, a venture firm that invests in world-positive deep tech startups at Pre-Seed and Seed. To learn more, visit us at cantos.vc. All right, my deep tech friends, I am so, so excited about today's episode. We have Sajin co-founder Sean Hunt with us. Sean was one of the first deep tech founders I backed alongside his co-founder, Gaurav Chakravarti in early 2017. He did his PhD in chemical engineering at MIT and also did a minor in finance, which I think you'll see come through. He's just so freaking clever in so many ways. This is going to be a really fun episode. For those of you who don't know Sajin, oh my gosh, where have you been? But don't worry, I'll catch you up real quick. What's so revolutionary about this company is that rather than going all in on biomanufacturing, they've taken the best of biology, cell-free enzymatic catalysis, and combined it with the best of what petrochemistry uses, metal catalysis. They've chained these together to forge their proprietary chemi-enzymatic manufacturing approach that allows them to make all sorts of chemical products from sugar instead of oil, including fertilizers, concrete additives, acids, peroxide, chelants, and a lot more on the roadmap. What's even more wild is that their primary reactions consume CO2. They're not just reducing our reliance on fossil fuels to make essential chemicals. The reactions literally sequester carbon into the products. I look back on when I first met Sean and Gorub and laughed because it was Y Combinator Demo Day, winter 2017, and I thought the seed valuation was a little expensive at the time, and honestly was ready to say no. But I threw up my hands and I asked, guys, what do you think in your wildest dreams you can build here? And they said, Ian, we really think we're building the green Dow DuPont. And I said, damn it, we're in. I have to be a part of this company. And I'm so glad I said yes. They've gone on to raise nearly a billion dollars in equity and debt to build their initial bioforge in Houston. And there are more larger facilities on the way. They're doing nine figures in revenue, which is very unique for a deep tech company. There are public ones making far less revenue than that. And these guys have really only just begun. Okay, I'll shut up now. Let's go learn from Sean. He has so much to offer that we might have to have him back on another episode because there's no way we're going to cover everything today. Deep Tech founders and investors, take out your notepads. Before we get into Solugen, can you sort of explain for me like I'm 10 why there was this first wave of Synbio companies or clean tech companies in like the 2000s, why a lot of them didn't work out, and then why we're seeing all this innovation today? I can speculate on it. I don't know if anyone knows truly the answer, but I, I, can, give you, I can give you my perspective. So, so we went through Y Combinator. My perspective is largely founded upon, you know, when we were going through y, YC, Jared and, and PB, Paul Bukite, were essentially like, hey, your company's very different from software. You should probably go talk to a lot of clean tech 1.0 founders because they'll probably offer you a bunch of insights. And so we're like, oh, great idea. So we went and, and chatted with, with a bunch. And I would say for some of them, they were not techno-economically driven. So, and what I mean by that is that you could build a unit economic model on paper and you'd be like, a whole bunch of things have to go right or it's just really not even possible for this to become sort of economically attractive from a unit economics perspective. That's a, a, a smaller handful of them. I think for many of them, it was a business model. And I think somewhat of the realities of trying to build a hard tech company where you know, many were essentially set up being like, hey, we're going 
we're a bunch of R&D people. We're going to fund you know, this R&D program. We'll have maybe 10, 20 simultaneous projects. Hopefully one of them goes well. Then we're going to IPO the company to go build a mega plant. And so you'd have these examples of companies that maybe were at bench scales, kind of the extreme. Maybe they did some, they did a piloting. I'd say it's probably common. Maybe they've got to demo scale. But then it's like, hey, we're going to IPO and we're going to build this mega plant. And the challenge with, with going straight to a mega plant is if you just zoom super tactically onto a mega level one, you need to raise a whole bunch of capital. There's a whole bunch of risks for building a mega plant. But then the third one is how do you go from nothing to suddenly you are shipping rail cars per day of material uh, to customers, right? That's kind yeah. of, it's pretty daunting, right? It's like, hey, we got this thing working in a lab and then all of a sudden we're going to build this thing and we're going to ship rail cars. What allowed for that? Were there like government subsidies where they could afford to be, you know, undisciplined? So, yeah, I think you could always point to Solyndra, right, as an example of where the DOE loan program kind of made mistakes. I think part of the thing, right, is that, frankly, back then, there just wasn't a significant amount of private capital getting these companies to the point required to then go and reasonably build a mega plant. And so it was essentially like, hey, private capital can take you up until this point, And then, okay, now you need to go to a mega plant and you can't really do this intermediate scale. I think that mixed with this sort of like idea that, hey, we can just build a mega plant, press a button, and suddenly we're going to be shipping rail cars every day, which is kind of, you have to build out supply chain capabilities sooner than your mega plant comes online. There's like all these ways in which, you know, I've learned by proxy through you and Gorub and Solagen is an archetype for the type of company I look for now. And one of the lessons I learned through you guys and, and a couple other clean chemistry companies was it's not just how big the market is that you're going after, because of course that's important. It's how high is the first rung of the ladder? Because like you guys were, by the time the seed round came around, you were selling peroxides by the gallon to like float spas down the street, you know, metaphorically, if not literally. They actually were. Yeah. <laughs> Super convenient. You can see, you could sell stuff by the gallon to sort of like MVP draw a line all the way up to now, you know, scale you guys are at today. There's other companies that as you as you alluded to are like, yeah, well, our cost doesn't necessarily work until we've built a, you know, one, yeah. two, three hundred million dollar plant. And so I now look for like, okay, well, how high is the bottom rung? Is it low enough to be achievable based on like the current capital markets for the round that you're raising? That's a critical insight. One way to qual qualify that bottom rung and how high it is, is what is the, the ASP, the average selling price of the target molecule, or like what sort of that beachhead. And so like if you look at Cleantech 1.0, it was essentially like, we're going to make biofuels, right? That's going to be the thing, biofuels. Biofuels is an extremely low ASP. You need an insane balance sheet if you truly want to enter fuels, right? Like as a startup, I think you'd be somewhat insane to enter fuels. One example here, right, is just look at Amaris. So like Amaris started in biofuels. Now they've made this transition and they sell, they have their own consumer facing product line now, right? They've moved really, really far up the ASP ladder because that's way more accessible. Yeah, um, it's like premium hair care products, you know, co-branded yeah. with. Yeah, so like having a phased out roadmap. So like for us, like peroxide is, is actually really cheap. It's actually not an ideal starting molecule, mm -hmm. but... We were in this, you know, niche market where we were selling peroxide for forty dollars a gallon. So, like, it worked for us as a stepping stone. But like, even right now, Solugen today, we we solidly focus on specialty chemicals. So, like, our sweet spot is one thousand to five thousand dollars per ton. If it's less than a thousand dollars per ton, 
our technology can make those chemistries, but I don't think we have the balance sheet or the proof points to essentially go to market with them today. So we essentially put them further down on our on our roadmap. So what was sort of coming from the, the clean tech 1.0, okay, like going after the lowest a- ASP products out there maybe isn't the right place to start. You know, the bottom rung's low enough. The capital environment has supported this type of company more. There's been some technological innovations that allow us to come down the cost curve faster. Like how did in that environment, how did Solagen start? I guess, yeah, so we started in 2016. So we kind of started, I guess, a couple of years after the whole implosion, but still very much before, I think, the current interest in a lot of climate tech and, and hard tech. And so what I think was interesting about us in 2016, right? So like we, I think it's really important to highlight, right, that we started as, frankly, a hobby. We <laughs> pitched, no, seriously, I mean, we pitched the MIT 100K competition. And I love telling people, right, we gloriously lost that competition. <laughs> we, we absolutely did not win the MIT 100K pitch competition, but we got $10,000. And and so for Gorb and I, it was like, I think one of the things that was kind of interesting, right, is that we had to survive on cash flow to survive, right? We didn't have financing other than this $10,000. So like it, it forces you to think really differently. That's like kind of one bucket. And then the second bucket is just absolute pure dumb luck in that, our first customers found us. I mean, they saw our pitch video. I think this one float spot owner, they shared it on a Facebook group that had like 400 float spot owners. And we started getting inbound and we looked at the selling price <laughs> and we were like, wow, they're paying this much. And like, you know, we built this PVC reactor and, you know, we were working 5 PM to like after midnight, it was essentially our nighttime hobby. And so like that kind of early on, we've always been focused on cash flow. And I think what's kind of interesting about Solagen, right, is that we have always had revenue since we were founded. We've never had a month where Solagen did not have revenue. Like that is unacceptable, right? You're not a company if you don't have revenue, in my opinion. So no comment. So how did you move from, like, why did you start with peroxide, given that it was a lower ASP product? And then like, how soon were you able to move away from it? What did that look like? What's interesting with, with the chemicals industry I think this is fairly industry specific, but maybe it's more broad. I can really only speak to the chemicals industry. So hydrogen peroxide. So Solagen today, so we we sell rail cars of hydrogen peroxide, right? So like we we move a, a it's very very different than in the olden days, right? Twenty sixteen hydrogen peroxide that we sell today, you know, two dollars a gallon, right? We were selling hydrogen peroxide for forty dollars a gallon. Well, why and, are we paying that much? Well, so so this is sort of what's really interesting is that even within a specific molecule there is that first rung, that accessible rung, really for any molecule this exists, where it's like, if you find that niche market, that it's not so much about the molecule, it was essentially about that they're buying five gallon pails and you have to ship hazmat via FedEx. And so it was like, it was essentially a supply chain issue and like a regulatory issue around shipping peroxide that made their sales price so high, which actually Mm -hmm. made it really easy for us to enter that market. Now, the flip side, right, is for you as an investor, you know, imagine I come to you and I say, Ian, huge, huge opportunity here. We're selling Proxy for $40 a gallon and we have 80% market share. We had 80% market share of the float spot market and we were making $12,000 a month, right? Like locally? No, this was in the US. We had 80% Seriously? of the float spot market in I the US and we, it was $12,000 a month, right? So like if, for you, for you as a venture investor, you're like, who are, like, this is, <laughs> there's no, That's cute junk, yeah. now, right? Like, Oh man, maybe maybe they'll hit fifteen thousand a month and they'll be done, right? So like that's one of the trade-offs with this type of a really niche market. But every every chemistry has this, and for us that was that was really a launching pad because 
we went from from float spot water treatment to an identical chemistry. Well, we had our excursion in cleaning wipes, which I always enjoy talking about. But then, yeah, I want to talk more about that later. Yeah, but but then we moved into energy produced water, and produced water has the same uh, water chemistry as float spas. So that that moved completely over. Obviously, sells at a different price point. But we were scaling up to Pilot and, and BioForge One to be able to support that price point. And then when did you start to layer on other products? Because Peroxide is, it, as I understand it, like single-digit percentage of your revenue today, right? Yeah, Peroxide is a is a is a low component of our revenue. We learned pretty early on that we could actually take the Peroxide from our first reactor, our enzyme reactor, and then actually use it ourselves in our second reactor, which is a metal catalyzed reactor, to do chemistry more selectively. So in effect, like we went from like selling the peroxide to, well, we, you, you know, you supported us in our seed round. So we were like, great, we have Ian's money now. We can afford to build a, a metal catalyzed reactor. With the metal reactor, we were like, this is a this is a higher ROI use of the peroxide for us to use it internally than it is to separate it out and sell it. So this is another thing that I have taken away from Solid and some other versioning successes in the portfolio is that if you're going into an industry that's sort of like, there's a lot of inertia. Sometimes your temptation is to stay capital light. You've got this brilliant thing that's sort of like the fulcrum for the industry. And if we introduce it into someone's bigger plant, then, you know, it can help their cost curve. So obviously they should buy it. And so you like sell just your high leverage technology into the incumbents because it's the cheaper way to do things. You know, six years in, I've seen that that sales cycle is often punishing and, you're at a point in the supply chain where like your margins get crushed or you're overexposed to a single customer. And I much, much prefer now to like bite the bullet, attempt to raise more money to vertically integrate yourself, ideally with revenue from day one. But like what, so the, the so-called so full stack deep tech approach, at what point were you like, no, 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 we want to be selling end product and building our own factories rather than trying to, you know, sell your enzymatic bioreactor into petrochem yeah. companies it was well essentially a day one decision because like our we got super lucky our first customers found us and we were and you know and it was essentially our ability to get early revenue I, I think that got us into y combinator i think what's interesting right is actually some of those early conversations about around cleantech 1.0 they actually informed that this model that you you have to build out and operate at least initially so like kind of a famous licensing business that people love to reference is uop so uop they, they're essentially a big licensor of all sorts of catalytic technologies that underpin refining and petrochem. Uh, they're, they're a huge technology licensor. It took 50 years to build that business. So like licensing, licensing is like a late stage capitalism activity. And so like the example that I like to kind of tell people, right, or this is the one that makes the most sense to me, I suppose, is like, let's say you have the designs for some amazing new car it's more aerodynamic. It's going to get way more range. Like, let's say it's for EVs. So it's like, this is obviously super important for EV vehicles. Like, if you can do this, I, I would say that nobody's going to buy the blueprints to a car that's never been built. And if your model is that, no, I don't build the car. I just sell the blueprints. Somebody else has to take on all the risk around scale up and the capital risk and the market risk for you to get paid. And as a result, like, like in, in the chemicals industry, like Huntsman's actually a really good example here where they build and operate extensively and their licensing business is actually a pretty healthy chunk for Huntsman. It's a licensing business for things that are completely off patent. And even though they're off patent, you still go to Huntsman to do the licensing 
because mm -hmm. it's all the nuanced and trade secrets around the execution that even though those patents are out there, like why would you invest all of that scale up in capital risk when you can just go to Huntsman and license it from them because they've done it so many times. They've built, owned, and operated them for decades. Yeah, this is this is why it sort of counterintuitively doesn't make sense because the entity that's taking the risk is going to get paid for it if it works exactly. and might want to get paid for it even if it doesn't. So as a startup, you know, you're sort of giving away the most lucrative yeah. prospects for your company. So you began to move away from other chemicals. Let's, you know, we're rewinding to whatever it is, to Series A, Series B. You've begun to make other products with the peroxide as an intermediary, how do you decide what products come next? Because presumably there's more that you could make than you were making at the time. I would say there's kind of like an early days solution answer, and then there's kind of like an answer today. So from the early days one, I would say it's essentially having conviction, right? Around like, hey, we're going to be the ones to do this. So like for us, it shifted from peroxide to glucaric acid. And essentially a, a stepping stone roadmap where we were going to start with gluconic and then sell glucaric. And there's a whole host of reasons why that one was strategic for us. Like it was essentially like the lowest rung from a technology standpoint on like, okay, we can prove. So Biofort uses what's called chemi enzymatic manufacturing. So it uses a cascade of enzymes followed by metal catalysis. And then you just have like a single evaporator on the back end. And so we were like, okay, well, there's a lot of risk involved with scaling a new technology. So let's scale a new technology on one that we know is easy for us to execute upon from a chemistry perspective using chemi enzymatic. And so it was like, okay, Bioforge one, it would be ideal to do gluconic and glucaric acid. We'll just we'll just consume our own peroxide in situ. And so like that was essentially a, a decision to de-risk technology and de-risk scale up. And that one was really interesting because it had this really incredible commercial pull from the sense that the chemistry it was going after in water treatment, which we were already selling into from peroxide, right? So we're already selling into water treatment. We could compete against these molecules called phosphonates. And so phosphonates, like if you think about a, like a right to win, phosphonates sell for over a buck 50 a pound dry. They're actually right now over $2 a pound. So that's very much in this, you know, $3,000, $4,000 per ton ASP that can help enable really attractive initial economics. And they're all imported from China. So it's like really nasty chemistry, really, really carbon intensive, and it leads to eutrophication in lakes. So like there was essentially like this big commercial pull to move away from phosphonates. And we knew we could essentially outcompete them in the market and essentially onshore that manufacturing was something that was easy to easy in the relative sense to scale up technologically. So in that case, you were selling in bioperoxide, it was chemically identical to what they were using before H2O2, arguably yeah. pure. But in this case, you were, you were selling glucaric acid as a competitor to phosphonates. Was, it, was that like a known alternative? What was it like it, selling two different chemistries against one another? It's a known alternative, but it's not what you would call a drop-in. So the materials qualification process is much more different, or is, is much different. So this mm -hmm. was the part that's like fairly interesting because essentially we were kind of like building two businesses at the same time. So we were scaling up from the PVC reactor to pilot plant to Bioforge 1 around glucaric. And then at the same time, we were building a supply chain packaging blending distribution business. Because 
we didn't, so BioForge One right now, that's, I think it moves something like three tanker trucks per day of material. Yeah. And so to have the supply chain capabilities, if you think about the order to cash process that underpins that, you know, you have to build this organizational capability to actually be able to move three tanker trucks per day, every day. And so it's like, okay, well, we want to build BioForge One. We have conviction in this chemistry. Like we believe there's a market demand to do it and our customers will adopt it. And at the same time, let's build a blending supply chain distribution business. What's interesting in the chemicals industry is you can cash flow blending supply chain distribution business with very little capital. And you can kind of think of it as Solugen's marketing expense, right? We go out into the market, we package together a whole portfolio of chemicals, like we're building these customer relationships and they're paying, our customers are paying us to develop these relationships with them. Tell us a little bit about the blending business because I think most people might not know about that. So it essentially stemmed from like, you know, we had this bright idea that we were going to enter the energy industry and we were going to solve the produced water problem. You know, well, yeah, didn't con- make sense. Yeah. So like we're, we conquered float spas, we launched our wipes brand and we decided we are not consumer cleaning founders. And we were like, you know, we're, we're wide eyed. We're going to go and we're going to enter the energy industry and we're going to solve produced water. And essentially, you know, when you go, we go to our very first customer, right? They're essentially, who the fuck is Solugen and what the fuck is this molecule? Like stay away from <laughs> Right. Like, quite frankly, they like to stay away. Right. And so ultimately, like what's really interesting about the chemicals industry is it has a very, very low net promoter score. So if you're familiar with like Comcast, right, like Comcast, I think it's a net promoter score of like 10 or something like that. The chemicals industry is less than 10. Oh my gosh. On average, the chemicals that and these are these are chemicals that we source from other companies. But when we go and compete in the marketplace, those chemicals on average have changed hands five times before they reach the end use customer. So it's massively inefficient and everybody hates their vendor. So the initial value prop of the blending supply chain distribution business is, can you get the right molecule to me on time? That's what you're solving for. We have this theory that we can build bioforges locally. And so we wanted to be able to support local markets because if you, if you try to go, so everyone in chemicals pretty much orders from distribution for one reason. If you go to a basic manufacturer, their plant is super big. So they can only ship rail cars. They need everything on take or pay. And so, and Corbin and I have done this. We've ordered chemicals from big chemical companies before. They'll essentially tell you like, hey, great, we got your order. We're going to ship you this tanker truck sometime between the next three and six weeks. We'll call you four hours before the truck arrives. <laughs> like, think about the logistics for that, right? Like, you're just sitting here twiddling your thumbs. Somewhere in three to six weeks, you're going to get this tanker truck. Hope you got a 6,000-gallon tank open somewhere that can receive this tanker truck, right? Like that is not customer service. This is why the net promoter score is really low, but they have the assets, so they don't really care. And they mostly sell into distribution anyway, precisely for that reason. So like you can build a pretty small, you know, forward cash flowing blending distribution supply chain business. And actually we let, we built that and we leveraged it to essentially sell out BioForge One. Okay. I think there's a couple of really important things here that are sort of like buried and not obvious about Solugen. I love that we're getting into this. One is that you've implied that you were offering products beyond the ones you were making yourself. Am I yes. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I remember there was this pushback with, I don't know, someone was, some other investors looking at the Series A back in 2018 and maybe it was a Series B, I don't remember. And they're like, oh, well, you know, Solugen's not making all their products. They're, they're reselling someone else's. And I'm like, yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> and they're like, well, they're, you know, they're selling petrochemicals. So it's not a pure play climate tech business, but it was sort of this like brilliant way 
to like hack the market that wasn't taking you seriously. And and I know I've talked to you before about get paid to do it, right? Totally. Yeah. And 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 generate some cash flow in the meantime. And then like get be able to fulfill the bottom rung of the ladder while you were still scaling up from the pilot to BioForge One and then sort of backfilling with your superior product. You you describe this almost like Trojan horse approach where you come in and you're like, Hey, you know, we'll sell you the thing that you're taking already. And then as you scale up, you're like, by the way, don't you want like the same thing, but pure and it actually consumes CO2. And they're like, you're already in with them. So it makes the sale easier for your core product. Whereas I think most people would have been sort of purists about it and not even acknowledge that as an option. So I would say it's been really interesting because like, I almost view it as a necessary part of doing business today, right? Like there's kind of two main buckets. So the first one is our customers do not want to buy a single chemical from a single company, right? So they want to buy a portfolio of chemicals from one company. They don't want to have a million vendors. So that's sort of like the first driver. The second driver is like, this is enterprise sales. So like procurement has a very different incentive structure from the P&L owner, has a very different incentive structure from the corporate sustainability group and the C-suite executives, right? They all value different things. And so like my favorite sort of like summary of like our sales cycle, and, and I love it when, when I see this happen, right? Is like, you go to a new customer, we're like, hey, here's what we offer today. We're competitive, right? You know, switch over to Solugen, we'll get it to you on time. Do that for like two or three months. Like, oh, wow, these guys got the, they, we ordered this and they got us here on time, right? Great. That's essentially, hey, you want to do a field trial? Here's all this data. Let's do a field trial for this chemistry. Here are the benefits for it. Out in the field, sustainability doesn't necessarily resonate, but safety does. And our chemistry, you know, it doesn't have as many of the hazmat logos as other chemistries, right? So it's like, hey, let's get the field trial. You do this field trial. Now you're essentially looking at the PL owner and it's like, okay, well, how did Solugen's chemistry perform relative to the incumbent? What benefit does the PL owner see? Because ultimately that's what we're selling. We're selling a product that helps the PL owner. And then when you go to the now essentially do that for a couple of, of, of the assets for this PL owner, now you can take that to the corporate sustainability group and you can essentially show them like, hey, we're already a vendor. Here's some PL improvements and here's our life cycle analysis. What does it look like to roll this chemistry out company wide? It's so interesting because it's the opposite of how most climate tech companies operate. They sell the sustainability first and then economics, hopefully later if they get there. Well, so the thing is, we have to talk to all these different audiences simultaneously. We have the same consistent story. We essentially just tailor the emphasis to each one of these different audiences. Like there's a lot of times we'll talk to the sustainability group first. And what happens, right, is if you go to the sustainability group first, they immediately say, okay, go to procurement, Right. If you're a company that doesn't have anything to sell, right? If you're like, no, I'm going to be a purist about it. I'm going to spend five, 10 years scaling up my technology, and then I'm going to start entering the market. Well, you're, you're dead in the water right there because the sustainability group does not buy things, right? Procurement buys things. So you, what are you selling to procurement? What is your value proposition to the PNL owner? If you can't help them this quarter, if you can't help them today, you don't have a value prop for them. You said it everybody else is doing the take or pay arrangements. Do you use the same structure and do you innovate on that as well? This is actually just kind of an interesting industry dynamic. So if you think about like take or pay, hell or high water clauses, these are things that a lot of debt providers would love to see, but industries have largely moved away from take or pay contracts. They're like, if you think about like customer service and customer friendly, not particularly. 
So like fixed price, minimum volume, that's mostly how the industry has moved. And take or pay, like, yeah, I mean, you're just going to really take a, a pricing haircut. But like take or pay is really there if you had to do it, like you, you're purely just covering the debt service. It's not really going to help you actually make money. Got it. Yeah, I, I often look for ways that you can come in and do something as simple as, I don't know, offering net 60 instead of 30 terms. Usually there's some there's some innovation on the business model to be had if you're making thing with, things with a cost structure where you have some wiggle room and not everything is being financed by debt. So you need these clauses in there. You try to keep me out of the marketing meetings because for, for Ode to Clean Our Wipes brand, my tagline was everybody wipes. And <laughs> they were like, no, Sean, get out of the marketing meetings. You're done here. My hack it solution for the go-to-market is, you know, like the Jimmy John's card, if you buy nine hoagies, you get the 10th one free. Buy nine yeah. truckloads, get the 10th truckload free, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah, give them a solid card. Let's talk, so, so if you, obviously, full stack, quote-unquote, full stack, vertical integration is relative. Not everybody's going to be doing everything from, you know, I don't know, mining to, like, selling CPG, but you did at one point integrate further into consumer packaged goods and you spun up the Ode to Clean brand with your bioperoxide. I had these wipes. I loved them. Why did you decide to move away from that? And was that a solution thing? Or I see a lot of some bio companies making consumer products. What's your what's your take on that? We were just my co-founder and myself, Gora, right, for the first 18 months of Solugen. So like our float spa business, that was just Gorb and I fulfilling that. We had no employees. So we didn't hire a single employee. Our first employee, Peter, he joined us in November 2017. And imagine, like I told you, right, we had 80% market share of the plus one markets. We capped out. We were like, oh, man, we got to keep growing, right? Like, we've tapped out this market. And, you know, what does Y Combinator tell you to do? Talk to your customers. So we talked to our customers. And they're like, oh, I really like this stuff. Like, I take a little alcohol and I bring it home and I, like, spray things. We're like, oh, well, like... If we can sell to our existing customers like a new product, well, we already acquired these customers, right? So like let's let's sell them something. So we interviewed our our top float spot customers and they were like, oh, we really like cleaning wipes, they're super convenient. Did the economics on it, we're like, hey, this is great. Because I always had this dream of having the world's first profitable pilot plant. And so it was like, if you build a unit economic stack for a cleaning wipe, it uses very little peroxide, right? It's mostly water and white material. And so we're like, man, these unit economics look great. And our customers want them and we don't have to acquire new customers. Like we have like a guaranteed market that we can just sell into initially. And it was it was a good experience for Gorb and I. Like we went and built this brand, like we built the supply chain for the wipes, right? And it was fairly complex because like some of the packaging was sourced from China, some from Georgia. Our co-packer was in California. So we built this thing, we did the PR and it sold out in the... I think it sold out in like the first day or first two days or something. Then we ordered another manufacturing batch and then that sold out. But like when our first employee joined in November, you know, it was like, okay, we're running this pilot plant. But then Gorb spending all of his time targeting millennial moms on Facebook and Instagram, right? With, with ads. Mm -hmm. And like me and my first employee, Peter, right? We're just packaging boxes. And we're like, we're not really advancing chemi-enzymatic manufacturing, right? Like, you know, this isn't really kind of going where we wanted it to go. and so. What we started doing was, this was Gorb's idea. I thought it was brilliant. He was essentially targeting executives at like Clorox and P&G with like really targeted ads, like to just these handful of people on earth. Like on Facebook? Yeah, yeah. Well, Facebook, LinkedIn, like, <laughs> so like, all, like all the tracking and stuff, like cookies and everything, right? So like, 
So like to these handful of people on earth, Eau de Clean looked like the biggest consumer brand ever. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just targeting these executives, right? And so like within like the first couple months, you know, we got, I think like three acquisition offers for the brand. And then we were like, okay, we want to go and pilot plan is here. We want to scale it up. We want to enter like the energy produced water sector. So we decided to sell the brand. So it got, it got acquired. I think right as our series A was closing, I think our brand got acquired. And it's still out there, odeclean.com. In the sale, did you create a customer for yourself? Are you still supplying yeah. whatever our type of them? Yeah. So, so we got a, a supplier agreement. And I have to say, like, like that whole saga, while it seems kind of like an offshoot, it actually helped like absolutely get Solution to where it got to today because like I always view supply chain as an organizational capability that should be built and should be built early, order to cash, all of that. Like it helped us build that. And when we went into customer meetings, like if you can walk into a customer meeting, even like enterprise customers, like enterprise customers, I feel like they're always a little bit remiss that like they can't have something to bring home, right? Like you don't bring home tanker trucks of chemicals, right? But it's like, <laughs> hey, we can pop this on a table and say, oh yeah, this is what we sell, right? It's so like even for enterprise customers for like as we were entered the energy sector, industrial water treatment and agriculture, being able to plop down in a conference room like, oh, yeah, here's one of our products. And they're like, oh, wow, you guys are a real company. Like you're not just an ideas company. You can plop down a physical product and be like, OK, this is a team that can execute. And this is their consumer. Like we're like, yeah, that's our consumer business unit. Right. And then it's like it, it essentially helped us build the, the industrial side of the business. So you think it can work? It's just, you know, it's a lot of work. It, it, it can like. work. It's a lot of work. And like. You know, ultimately, you have to move into e-com metrics, right? So it's CAC to LTV. The LTV mm -hmm. is somewhat unknown on repeat orders. You're taking a gamble there. And we were we were entering the market at a time when furniture and mattress companies were really hot. So like our wipes brand had to compete against them for advertising revenue. So like our CAC to LTV was good, but like we would have had to really keep running at it, really keep optimizing the spends. And so we were like, okay let's keep doing it, right? Like we're going to keep doing it, but let's also just see if there's an M&A opportunity out here. Because at the end of the day, we want to sell bulk chemicals and then we can get a supplier agreement. Yeah, best of both worlds. What happened to the, the water treatment business? Are you still selling into midstream energy services? You're now beyond that. So like, tell us about moving into some of the ind other industries and what happened with selling into energy. So energy became our biggest business segment in 2019, 2020. And then I think now it's it's less than 30% of our revenue, maybe even less than 20% of our revenue at this point. So what's, what's just really nice about the chemicals industry in general is that like everyone is your customer. You can literally sell to every single company in every market. And it's just really neat, like especially once you have an asset online, because the same chemistries are used all over the place. So now we, we're actually fairly evenly split between concrete, industrial water treatment, agriculture, and then a, a big one that's, that's coming up for us on the horizon is household, industrial, and institutional cleaning. Interesting. Wait, okay. So tell us about concrete and ag, because we haven't heard that from you before. So concrete's a really interesting one. So like our glucaric acid can make, I think it's 7,500 PSI concrete. Nobody wants 7,500 PSI concrete. Everybody wants 5,000 PSI concrete. So, well, what does it mean? Well, you can essentially add less cement. So cement, I think, is like 60% of the cost of concrete. We can reduce cement usage by 15 to 20%. And so a 15 to 20% reduction in cement, if you think about like the full cubic yard of concrete, you're reducing the full cubic yard by like a buck fifty to $2.50 per cubic yard. Which yeah, for like, I think cement's something like a 
it's like a one to two trillion dollar industry just cement not concrete oh yeah no so cement's pretty wild and so like like the incentive structure is aligned for like if you're someone who uses concrete you want to use as little cement as possible so obviously there's a huge like environmental footprint but it's a huge cost footprint so like and, and the math is pretty wild because i think like 10 kta of of solute and bioforge material sold just in the concrete I think it offsets over 200 KTA of emissions associated with cement manufacturing. Holy moly. It's, it's like the, the, yeah, the ratio on the offset side is just really, really wild. And then... Yeah, cement's, cement's two gigatons of CO2e a year. It's one of the most emitting industries on the planet. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. And so the other the other one that's that's fairly interesting is there's... If you think about, so our, our chemistry is used as a corrosion inhibitor in water treatment. And so rebar corrodes. And so rebar, what they use right now is calcium nitrate. That's a cost center. And we can actually reduce your cement usage and reduce or eliminate the need for calcium nitrate corrosion inhibitors because our, our glucaric acid itself is its own corrosion inhibitor. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of like a dual, dual purpose. Yeah. And then what are you doing in ag? So this one started in water treatment. So water treatment is kind of the thing that unites all this because like in concrete, we're what's called a set retarder. So it's about like the water to cement mixture and reducing that cement mixture. So in agriculture, drip irrigation, you've got scale and corrosion controls. So we're like, okay, we have our facility in West Texas and Lubbock. Lubbock is a huge agricultural center in the US. It's like, let's talk to the farmers, let's do some field trials. The same chemistry that we use to prevent scale and corrosion in energy produced water systems and industrial water treatment. Like agriculture in many ways is a subset of industrial water treatment. If you think about drip irrigation and irrigation systems in general. And so we could essentially get an in into agriculture via water treatment. And then if you look at nutrient stacks, so you got your NPK macros, your ammonium, your potassium, and your phosphorus. But like the key to high yield crops is the micronutrient profile. So micronutrients are like manganese, iron, copper, zinc. I think an acre of cotton, so like, I'll give you a number. So an acre of cotton needs a pound of zinc. So you kind of have two extremes. So, okay, I need, like, if I'm a farmer, I need to put a pound of zinc into my field. I can just buy literal zinc rocks, right? Zinc sulfate. And the thing is, it's going to have very bad uptake. So if I need to get a pound actually into the plants, maybe I'm applying 50 pounds of these zinc rocks, right? Yikes. Or I can go to Dow Chemical, who offers versine. So versine is zinc chelated with EDTA. And now I need a pound in the field. Maybe I'm putting in 1.5 pounds. I have way better uptake, but this stuff is really expensive. So our molecule, glucaric acid, is made from corn, right? So we can do OMRI certified organic farming, and we can be at a competitive price point to petroleum-derived EDTA. So we kind of sit in the... We're at the same performance as like a zinc EDTA for micronutrient delivery, but we're sustainably sourced. We can do organic farming. Yeah. And we're better than zinc sulfate rocks. So don't, don't throw rocks in your field. Use solution. That's the pitch. You're, yeah. You're, you're competing at the same level, but also they're able to market their stuff as organic and sell it for more. Amazing for, for their bottom line. What are some implications of the Inflation Reduction Act on your business and in, in these industries? How are you thinking about that? Well, that and, and I don't know if you saw, I think today it was announced the new executive order from, from Joe Biden on the bioeconomy and biomanufacturing. A big oh, wow. Yeah, that was, that's, that's today. I think Gorb's going to be in it went uh, through. DC tomorrow. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So, so like there's a whole bunch of really good tailwinds for solution, right? So like 
when BioForge One came online, China stopped exporting phosphonates. So like all of our customers in the conversion funnel just immediately converted because you couldn't buy phosphonates anymore. And now with the, the Inflation Reduction Act, I've been told to call it the ERA bill. If you're apparently if you're okay, with the ERA. ERA bill, yeah. So <laughs> ERA and then this new executive order. We're super excited. I would say the implications right now, not fully known. That's what I think is really interesting because figured none of the stuff has gone through. Like I, I think it's all sitting with the lawyers right now in terms of what's going to qualify. But I think it's going to be mostly monetized through tax equity credits. And you're obviously, you know, you're paying some attention to this as Gaurav is in DC. But other than that, are you spending some cycles or dollars on lobbying at all? Yes. Yeah. So we work with Heather Podesta's group Invariant. We started working with them in 2019. And I would say like it's lobbying is probably like a definitely a post-series A activity, maybe like a series B onwards activity. It's like if you're trying to link ROI to investment, it's a really, really hard link, right? Mm-hmm. But like it's definitely helped helped us get government contracts and government contracts, they're a really great way to accelerate research and development, right? I should say. I want to get into hiring and talent and all that. What sort of lessons do you have for earlier stage DTEC founders in recruiting and retaining the right people and managing them? How do you think about your team? Yeah, I I would say Gorb and I are, are, we learn learning as we go, right? There's a lot of battle scars. Hiring is really, really difficult. And our hiring practices necessarily have kind of changed over time with scale. I would say hiring in the early days was actually the easiest time. So we got this recommendation mm-hmm. from a combinator and, and I always make this this recommendation to everybody. So we I, I think for our first for our first five, maybe no, maybe even our first 10 employees, we made everyone do a one-week trial. So it was essentially like we had this like standard consulting agreement. You're gonna get paid this amount. You know, we'll cover your hotel, right? We'll cover your flights, the fly-in, and you know, work with us for a week on like one project. And so it was essentially like a sprint project, how well do we work together? And what's kind of interesting about this, right, is like, and this is why I love this one, because it's such a YC thing to recommend. It's fairly irrational for someone to agree to do a one-week trial as part of a job interview. So you are necessarily self-selecting out like these people who only fit into big corporate America as like people who really wouldn't be a good fit for a startup. Yeah, They'd look at this and they'd be like, this is insane. I'm not doing this, right? But for the people who agree to do it, it's like just by agreeing to do this one-week trial, you've essentially self-selected into this pool of people who could be like first startup employees. I love that. I'm totally recommend that. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, so all those employees that did the one-week trial, they're still here. That's all really? like it's, it's It's remarkably successful. And, okay, and obviously it's week, changed. How how has how you know how has that process changed with scale? So once we got to a certain point where like, yeah, you can't do that anymore. And like for certain roles, right? Like non-acrobat roles, like if you think about hiring an accountant, you're not going to put an accountant through a one-week trial, right? Sure. How many people saw Legend today, just for context? For about 200. Okay. Yeah. So I would say in that interim between doing the one-week trials, what we did not do quickly enough was there's this book called Who. Have you, I don't know if you've ever read this book. I no. I recommend it to everybody. It's just W-H-O, Who. We got it from Seth. Seth has it on his, uh, Seth Banner from 50 years. So like he has it on his, he's like four books he gives to every founder. And like Who was on there and Gorb and I definitely ignored it to our own power. So like we did not have like a consistent hiring process. Like it was more intuition and like behavioral style interviews. We this didn't have- Who, the method. The A method for hiring? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 
Yeah, so I'd, I'd read that and I'd, I'd wholesale implement it. It makes the hiring process like onerous. And I think like, as we started getting bigger, people were like, oh, your hiring process is too onerous. So you need to make it less onerous. And that was a mistake. And so at around like, I think 40 to 50 employees, we implemented who as the methodology. And it, it works for, so for people who truly read the book, like it works. Scaling it across an organization is difficult because a lot of people aren't going to take the time to read the book. So then at a certain point, maybe like 100 employees plus, then there's like trainings for hiring managers and stuff. But, but I, I would say like this isn't anything that I think Solidgen is particularly good at. I think it's something that we want to get much better at every month, every, every quarter. We want to get better at our hiring practices and, and like What's the interesting. and the predictability. You know? Yeah, at 200, you're still very much at the scale where people who join now probably have a lot of say in how things are going to get done into near perpetuity at the company. So like that, that I, yeah. I left SoFi when it was about 130 people. And I just remember that time very fondly. And uh, we didn't have this capability when Cantos was just me in a $4 million fund. And, you know, I invested 50 K in your, in your seed round, but now investing out of our third fund, we have a full-time talent partner who is supporting portfolio companies and implementing some of those processes and sometimes, you know, showing up to the office and helping to implement their applicant tracking system and all that. So that's been, it's been fun to learn more about that. I wish we had that capability early on. How has the Solugen pitch evolved from seed to now post series C? I mean, you guys closed $350 million last year. I imagine that pitch is a little different than, you know, raising one and a quarter and then five million. Yeah. Well, I, so, so the pitch has definitely changed. It's the, the one consistency has always been around chemienzymatic manufacturing and like being able to build smaller modular chemical plants closer to end users. That part hasn't changed, but I think I always like to say that like every month, Gorb and I get a little less naive, a little less naive and a little more jaded. And we're always trying to fight becoming too jaded. Right. <laughs> um, but, but strategic naivety, I think is important. The thing, quite frankly, right, is I, I mean, even at the outset, we never really appreciated all the things that chemienzymatic manufacturing could bring to the table, and especially to all the knock-on effects of it, because they're sort of like the direct impact of being able to convert a feedstock to a product with high yield. But then there's all these downstream ancillary benefits. And I would say, too, the biggest thing that I think has has changed, so like this is another kind of clean tech 1.0 lesson. So I'll bring this full circle for you, Ian. So like, the way we focused on, on R&D at Solugen is, some would say, myopically focused on scaling to BioForge1, like wildly focused. We had all these things happening on the business. On the business side, super nimble, right? We'll enter these different markets. We'll try new products. We'll do all these nimble things. But like on the process side, it was like we went from an idea to a 10,000 ton per year plant in less than five years, right? And BioForge1 was built in 11 months from groundbreaking through commissioning startup and first product. And that was like, we were just focused on scaling up the core technology. And at the same time, you know, like figure from an investor perspective, you can very easily make the argument that we were too focused, right? Where it's like, hey, you're just going to do this one thing. Like, how do we know you're going to be able to do these other things with chemienzymatic manufacturing? So like we were scaling up and we were building out this IP white space. I think we now have like over a hundred patents around different molecules. Yikes, wow. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So it's like, there's all these different molecules that we can make from a chemienzymatic perspective. And so what it was was sort of being disciplined about what are we actually executing upon and bringing to market first and scaling. 
And then what are we developing the portfolio around and the proof of concepts to know that we'll be able to scale it in the future? The way the pitch has really changed now is articulating what is our molecule pipeline? Like, what are we doing first? What are we doing second, third, and fourth? Because our ultimate goal is to decarbonize chemicals manufacturing. That's like an easy thing to say. It's a really hard thing to, to do. And it's a really hard thing to communicate intelligently the proper sequencing that like, I, I believe in a permission system, right? Like if we do this, then we have permission to do the next thing and the permission to do the next thing. So like, what is that proper permission system that gives us permission to go and, and decarbonize chemicals? Well, what's next for Solugen? What kind of products are we going to see? What's the sort of next scale after the, the initial bioforge at HQ in Houston? Yeah. So there's a bunch of, you know, like, like anything, once you get some product to market, you'll have incremental improvements, right? And so there'll be a lot of that. I, I am genuinely excited about the incremental product improvements. I think there's a whole bunch of cool new things that our products can do. I, of course, and you, of course, Ian, love the disruptive uh, innovation, right? That side. So they're longer time horizons, but we are very much interested in bioplastics. I think chemienzymatic manufacturing can, if you have the yields that we have, that's what's always kind of made bioplastics so unattractive is their cost relative to petrochem. So if you can make these monomers cheaper, it can really unlock bioplastics. And then there's a couple other chemistries that we're, we're looking at around, you know, ox like part of it too, right, is like we're building capabilities internally around like we have oxidation today where we use air to oxidize rather than nitric acid. We have hydrogenation. We actually have amination as an internal capability. And so like what's how that? we link. So aminations are like, like you think about nylons, right? So how do you actually make a bio-based nylon? So like, interesting. Yeah. So it's a really, it's a really cool problem that we're solving now where it's like, okay, we're talking to like, we have our customers today with these enterprise target customers that want to work with us. What is that roadmap where it makes sense for them, makes sense for us. And we're essentially linking together these capa these manufacturing capabilities on the bioforge with the molecules that like really matter to our customers and, you know, are really exciting to solve and are you going to build more bioforges, build bigger ones? What's the next step in production capacity? Yeah, so we have upcoming announcements, but we're actually expanding our Houston facility. So obviously the quickest way for us mm -hmm. to get more bioforge capacity in the ground is to just replicate our 10 KTA modules. So we're doing that in Houston, and then we're moving from 10 KTA standard packages to 50 KTA standard packages. And a 50 oh, wow. KTA, it's actually two 25 KTA trains next to each other. So they're fully redundant. And so we'll be building that somewhere in the Midwest to be announced soon. And how does that compare to the size of, I don't know, a competing petrochemical plant? We're in Houston. And so in Houston, it is common to drive down a 610 into Pasadena in the ship channel, and you will see 1.5 million ton per year chemical plants. Holy moly. Okay, <laughs> you're talking about 10 to, 10 to 50 KTA. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, so pretty Kill much anything, per annum for those not familiar. Yeah, so so anything less than 100 KTA is considered a small plant for the chemicals industry. And what does that mean for the supply chain? I mean, it's it's sometimes I think about this as like decentralization of the real world, where like yeah. you by distributing the sites of production around the supply chain, you are maybe saving on logistics costs, or and there's some like counter positioning on the seven hours parlance to being able to have smaller plants that compete economically. Yeah, so it very much changes the, the go-to-market on, on chemicals. So like if you are the owner of a 1.5 million ton per year chemical plant, you probably have a break-even uptime of 60 to even 70%. So 
something like 200 days out of the year, the plan has to be running just to pay for itself. And so, so then what happens is, and if you're at 1.5 million tons per year, what that means is you've probably saturated your home country market. You've probably saturated like several countries beyond you. And so what you end up in is this thing has to be on in order for you to pay the bill. So like you don't have customer relationships. You, you've essentially got to move at 1.5 million tons per year, you're moving unit trains, right? A unit train is 120 rail cars of a single commodity. Wow. And, and so this is how you end up in the situation where it's like, you've got this global distribution network. You know, if you think about someone who purchases a unit train of a chemical, they have an incredible price position. They're going to send it to another distributor. Then they're going to downpack it to tanker trucks. Then they're going to downpack it to totes. Then they're going to sell those totes to a consumer company. That consumer company is going to blend them. And you just kind of see how it trickles down. If you have a smaller plant, like three tanker trucks per day may sound like a lot. Three tanker trucks per day is really not a ton of volume. That's a tiny amount of volume in the chemicals industry. Soygen has a lot of room to grow. But with three tanker trucks per day, you're already in tanker trucks, right? You're not in rail cars. You can have direct, direct communication and line of sight with your customers. And you can actually circumvent a lot of the supply chain, you know, shocks, right? Sean, you have an incredible ability to think both both uh, short term, tactically, and and long term, like visionary. I want to talk about the latter a little. In your wildest dreams, where is Solugen in ten and twenty five years? Yeah, permission to dream here. So yeah, it's I I always love this. It's like a daily struggle, right? like trying to hit the future and then yeah, the realities of today. So I, I think within 10 years, we're going to have multiple chemical plants. And I would say within 20 years, I actually don't think we'll be a chemicals company, quite frankly. Like I think, I think chemicals is a, is a good step into decarbonization and industrial decarbonization. But I think decarbonization mm-hmm. is the bigger theme, right? So like, like, you know how like Berkshire Hathaway has their insurance business that pretty much pays for everything? Like, yeah, I think I think chemicals can be the sort of underlying business where it's like, hey, we did chemicals first and we decarbonized chemicals. But like the skill sets and the technologies that we've developed within Solugen, we can decarbonize other assets. We can decarbonize assets that are not even chemicals related because, you know, like an asset's an asset and like these these skills transfer directly. And like especially too, when I think about like who is becoming our largest audience within our customers is these corporate sustainability groups. They have sustainability problems, not just on the chemicals that are in their supply chain. They have sustainability challenges across all of their supply chains, many of which are not chemicals related. Well, it's it's interesting you you bring sort of industrial decarbonization into play, and and I I try and think of decarbonization as a efficiency improvement. Like when I hear emissions, I hear waste, and just purely economically speaking, waste is not good yeah. for those who maybe are focusing more on economics, might not have the luxury of paying attention to their LCAs. And so I almost think of it as like new industrials rather than than just climate tech and sort of our tech circles, parlance or, or deep tech. And at a certain point, I've noticed, you know, maybe it's around the time you went out to raise your Series C, it's like, you know, the the craziest deep tech investors in in the tech world were backing you at seed and series a and series b and then you know you start talking more to wall street type investors and they're like the heck is deep tech this is industrials we got whole groups that cover this and you know you started sort of raising a lot more money from a totally different demographic or you know some might call that narrative arbitrage from deep tech to (laughs) to, uh to industrials once it starts working what's it been like you know i don't know 
interacting with non-venture investors. So, so it's it's frankly been refreshing. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. I love venture. <laughs> uh, it's uh, so you know what's really interesting. I would say it's more like interacting with our customers. Frankly, like our hmm. our customers are companies that many of them are publicly traded, and they own hard assets. Right, they are themselves industrial companies. So like the way they think about their PL, the way that they think about capital allocation, that's how this set of investors thinks. And so, like I would say. You know, like we first had to learn kind of how to speak this language as we were entering the market, entering the energy sector after the wipes brand. And so like having those communications in, in ag, concrete, industrial water treatment, that those conversations and working with those customers helped us prepare, I think, for the these the, the set of investors that we work with today. Well, I'm I'm really excited to watch the coming years of, of Cell Agents progression. I have watched you and Gorab grow tremendously. I've learned so much from you. Thanks for letting Cantos be a, a tiny piece of the journey and for deigning to be founder advisors to, to the new fund. It's been, it's been really oh, you're, fun. You're being to, modest. You were a big part of the journey. For sure. I have to say you have some incredible investors. It's been so fun investing alongside 50 years and refactor and KT and founders fund. And, and now a lot more groups to, as well. And really has been an archetype. There's a lot of lessons there that I'm applying today. You know, if you had one parting word for founders, maybe just now raising their seed round. You said something funny looking at another company a while back where you were sort of like, well, you know, these certain things maybe you don't pencil out. But, you know, 22, 22 Sean might not have invested in 2017, Sean. So what do yeah. I, what, what parting wisdom would you have for That's 2017, the thing that I think Sean? Yeah, 2022, Sean definitely wouldn't invest in 2017, Sean. It's <laughs> crazy, so naive, you know, all this, right? And it's like, there's strategic naivety, right? No, I, I would say, I think a, a parting word for founders raising today is like, I think the fundraising environment is probably more similar today to how it was in 2017, 2018, when SawAgent was getting started. And so I think one of the things that differentiated us was the focus on early engagement with customers, and building revenue. And I think, you know, I, I think the pendulum always shifts, right? So like there's been a, a recent shift on, well, okay, well, just do long term, like you can have a, a go to market that's like on a 10 year plus horizon. And I, I think that's less true. And I think even if you find investors who tell you it's true, you probably won't find investors that'll fund you at the next round when you inevitably run out of money because you weren't focused on revenue. I think, I oh, think if so you think true. about it, yeah, like, like every kind of Every business, like every technology, like there is, if you do this analysis, there is something that, of value that you could deliver to a customer today. And like, if that thing of value that you could deliver to a customer today is also a strategic capability for your future organization, that's the sweet spot, I think, for, for really getting started, right? Because your customers will help you monetize an organizational capability that will help you get your technology to where it needs to be in the future. For Solugen, that was blending supply chain and distribution. And I'm convinced that that every hard tech company out there has something that they something of value that they could offer to a customer today. I truly think that you and Gaurav and Solugen are examples for a whole generation of entrepreneurs innovating in the real world. Thank you for taking a little time to share wisdom with them today. If anyone out there is inspired enough to to join Solugen, obviously can't recommend it enough. Solugen.com uh, will lead you to their careers page. I believe you're probably always hiring. We are always hiring, and especially too, like with the amount of capital that we have, we 
the permission system, we have the permission to bring to market some of the technologies that we've been incubating that are at the early stages. And I'm super excited for that because it's like old Solugen happening multiple times over now, like 2017, 2018 Solugen, where it's like, hey, we have this thing. How do we get it from a pound a year to right now the, the target on the plant's over 4,000 pounds an hour, right? So like, how do you do that scale up? It requires a, a lot of nonlinear thinking and it's a, it's a pretty exciting time. If you're an excited, you know, acrobat, so to speak, of hard tech and all sorts of different engineering stuff, like join Solidity, we've got all sorts of, of fun, fun roles. Yeah, so fun. Another life, I like to think I studied chemical engineering or biochemistry and, and was working for you guys. You begin to see what you're describing is that in the long run, you build that R&D and manufacturing capacity with all the nuances of supply chain, the different industries and regulatory policy where you are building these sort of you know, you'll spin off a thousand little startups internally, essentially. And I, I can't wait to see where you go within chemicals and, and beyond. So everybody out there should be paying attention to Solugen. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Ian. All right, Sean. Thanks so much. See you soon. Yep, take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Near Frontier. Links to external content mentioned are available in the show notes and at nearfrontier.com, where you can also find other episodes of the show. To leave feedback or suggest future guests, you can find us on Twitter at Cantos.